Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. Doug Ray talks with Dr. Rick Chandra about his article, Differential Olfactory Outcomes in COVID-19, a Large Healthcare System Population Study. Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your guest host for this episode, Dr. Doug Ray from Baltimore, Maryland. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rick Chandra, Rick is a professor of otolaryngology and chief of the rhinology and skull base surgery division at Vanderbilt University. We will be discussing his recent publication, Differential Olfactory Outcomes in COVID-19, a large healthcare system population study that was first published in the January 2022 edition of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. Rick, thanks for joining us. How's life in one of my favorite towns, the Music City? Hey, Doug. Good to talk to you. We're doing great here. Things are busy in the department. We have a new chair that's been great. We just matched a wonderful class of residents and hopeful that the spring and summer meetings go off as planned. Yeah, I mean, I think your article obviously is all about COVID and it seems like we're all optimistic that life is going to start to normalize. So I think everybody's fingers are crossed. Yeah, well, I'm appreciative of your interest in the paper. We've had a smell and taste center here and I guess it was there ripe for this kind of study even before the pandemic, and then the pandemic happened. Exactly. Well, so just as a little intro, obviously, Rick, two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, the virus's impact on olfaction has become well-documented. And we as clinicians are seeing more and more patients in our practices with anosmia and hyposmia after COVID-19 infections. And it's becoming increasingly important for us to have data to counsel our patients on their prognosis. Your paper discusses the rates of COVID-19-related olfactory dysfunction, And these are extremely high, ranging from 73% of patients that was uh, documented in your study compared to other studies which have documented rates as high as 98 and 86%, depending on the study. So your paper represents a large cross-sectional survey of over 1,000 patients with COVID-19, and it really allows us a better understanding of the rates of olfactory dysfunction and patient traits that are predictive of the presence and severity of smell and taste disturbances, as well as helps us to understand their prognosis. And your paper is also unique in the sense that it analyzes SNOT-22 scores in the study population. And what this, I think, allows the authors to assess is associations between SNOT-22 scores over time, because you're getting different time points depending on when the patient filled out their questionnaire after their COVID-19 infection. So Rick, first of all, congratulations on a terrific paper. How did you get interested in this topic and what prompted the idea for this paper? Obviously, the subject was and is of great interest to ENTs, and the prevalence, like you said, is extremely high. One thing that caught my attention was how uh, in Europe, Google searches for smell loss seem to precede and even predict outbreaks. One of our residents, Nikita Chapurin, who incidentally is doing a rhinology fellowship, he and us faculty were all just having a conversation one day. As I said, we have a smell and taste center, but also a well-developed population health program as well as mechanisms to identify and contact these patients remotely. So we just started to go for it. It's very timely. And I think for a lot of us that are seeing these patients, it's really important data so we can help talk to them about this. So Rick, tell us a little bit about the methodology of your paper. Sure. We identified these patients based on the coding and sent electronic surveys to our patient database, which the institution was was keeping of these COVID-19 positive patients over a interval from February to November of 2020. And we just kept collecting surveys until we got 1,000 patients. 
we had just over a thousand actually. The response rate was 21.3%, which is about standard for this kind of a, a study. The data was automatically logged into a, a REDCap database, which was done fairly automatically. And then using regression analysis, we were trying to describe the relationship between the initial severity of disease and the duration of the patient reported olfactory loss. That was the, the main goal. But then also to look at how the SNP-22s and the initial presenting symptoms and patient comorbidities varied with both the severity and the duration of the disease. On the paper, we also had a good team member named Nawit Chowdhury, who's very uh, facile in statistics that, that helped with a lot of that. Rick, when we look at the paper, can you just summarize your results and what you want the reader to take away from your paper in terms of the results and the conclusions? Unsurprisingly, because these patients, most of them were just healthy and going about their lives before COVID, over 90% reported normal smell and taste beforehand. But then, as you said, almost three quarters of patients or 73% specifically had some degree of smell or taste loss with the disease. At the time, what was most eye-opening, but I think is also borne out in the literature more generally now, is that the mean duration of the smell loss was almost three weeks. It was 19.7 days in our study and over 10% lost their smell for six weeks. The first goal we had looking at the correlation between severity and duration, that the initial severity of the smell loss, patient reported that is, was associated indeed with symptom duration. And the level of significance was very high. The p-value was less than 0.01 kind of thing. That was the main finding of the paper. Some of the associations were somewhat paradoxical though. For example, the absence of fever, it was statistically significantly uh, predictor for patients reporting moderate to severe hyposmia. That might actually be consistent with other similar studies in the literature showing that there is inverse relationship between severity of smell loss and, and systemic disease. We also found that lower BMI was significantly associated with prolonged durations. That's another um, example of how the severity, or really in that case, duration, might be associated with a healthier patient. But it also tells us that these problems might disproportionately impact in general healthier patients with regard to less severe course of COVID and also milder comorbidities. This not 22 scores, not surprisingly, were highest earlier in the disease and, and also declined during the duration of the disease, with most of the change being driven by the rhinologic and the extranasal rhinologic domains. We kind of carved into that. And if you look at the paper, a lot of that data is in supplemental tables, which you can access electronically. But there's some other predictors, such as for patients to have moderate to severe hyposmia and you know, things like male gender, sore throat, GI symptoms, and as I said before, absence of fever. I'm not sure what might be of greater interest to, to the reader, whether it's the SNOT 22 scores or whether it's the smell loss, but looking at the smell loss was our primary goal with this. Taste, interestingly, followed similar trends, but there's probably a limitation in using patient-reported outcomes for taste, especially even more so than smell, because as you know, uh, patients often don't discriminate between what true taste sense is from gustation versus just the concept of flavor. They, they frequently confuse those two entities. We did find, though, that patient-reported taste effects roughly follow what we observe for patient-reported olfaction. And that actually, what, what you mentioned at the end talks a, is kind of leads into a question I had about just one of the limitations of your study and any study that have looked at olfactory dysfunction in COVID-19 patients, specifically the recall bias. And I know, interestingly, that 
prior papers that were published in the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, one by, I think it's Moeen, in which COVID-19 patients were assessed with upset scores, suggests that patients actually underreport their hyposmia. This was discussed actually in a, a Scope It Out podcast in 2020 by Carol Yan in her paper that was one of the earliest papers that looked at self-reported olfactory loss in patients with COVID-19. What's your thoughts about that in terms of the limitation, the fact that patients, if anything, tend to underreport their hyposmia? So I agree about recall bias in general, and it's always a limitation with these types of uh, study designs. I will say that patients who felt like their sense of smell was normal prior to getting sick, I think that's probably pretty accurate. But with regard to loss of the sense of smell itself, as the pandemic wore on, people became so tuned into that as a, a symptom to watch out for. The adage amongst some of my friends was make sure you can smell your coffee in the morning and your wine at night. And if you can, you're probably okay. I think as things wore on, people became so focused on their sense of smell, maybe the impact of that recall bias declined. It's hard to know that though, in terms of limitations, Recall with taste, I think, is probably a more pervasive issue because people can't really discriminate between that and what gustation is, as we said before. And Rick, you had mentioned earlier, and what uh, comes out in your study and is consistent with other studies is that it seems that patients with more severe hyposmia or anosmia seem to be the overall the healthier patients with COVID-19 and that the sicker patients, it seems to be less of an issue. And that seems consistent with other papers as well. What's your feeling about that? So I actually just read a study today looking at how patients with olfactory disorders are less likely to get hospitalized, put on ventilators and die. And the odds ratios for these things were in the five to seven range. So these are not small effects. That being said, it might be that somebody who is likely to get intubated or hospitalized, you know, it, it might be an older patient with more comorbidities and they just might not be focused on their sense of smell. It may be we're just overlooking it in retrospective studies in patients who have more pressing health concerns at the moment, specifically they're getting hypoxic or whatever. But reading a lot of these different studies, the methodology is such that I think we can realistically accept the conclusion that there is some inverse relationship between severity of or duration even of olfactory symptoms and overall health and severity of the respiratory disease that they experience. It's also interesting to me that asthmatics would superficially think are at greater risk for having respiratory complications of COVID, but they don't necessarily. And in fact, they may fare a little bit better. And I, there's a lot just talking to colleagues in pulmonology and allergy and immunology. There's a lot of theories for that. It may well be because they're on inhaled corticosteroids. We, you know, we just don't know the direction of that finding is similar to what we just discussed as well. And so I think it's a, what we're seeing is, is a real phenomenon. And I guess it just tells us that so much of the pathophysiology of COVID-19 still remains undescribed and undefined. There's a lot more research to be done. Absolutely. Rick, I did have a question. Your data was obviously collected prior to the rise of the Omicron variant. This may be an unfair question, but what's your impression of the rates of olfactory dysfunction with Omicron as what would be compared to probably the rates that you saw in your patients who were probably infected with preceding variants of COVID-19? That's a great point. Omicron 
in contrast to say Delta and the preceding variants, it seems to follow a different disease course. It's less severe. It seems less often to be associated with anosmia. In a way, it almost acts like a garden variety variant of upper respiratory tract infection that we used to deal with. It also seems to spread despite vaccination status. I mean, I don't have to pilot data to sit and go over with you on that, but I think many of us know people and patients that have gotten Omicron despite two or three vaccine shots. I just don't know if natural immunity to previous strains has much effect on it. Frankly, I wonder if it's really a variant of COVID-19 or if we should have just called it COVID-2021, but I don't know. I'm not a molecular biologist, but it just seems to follow a different course altogether. That'll be your next job, (laughs) So Rick, are you and your team at Vanderbilt doing any other research in this area? What what are you interested in? What's on your horizon? We have in our smell and taste clinic, we have been testing patients who are experiencing post-viral anosmia long after the disease has passed. Our incidence of that, I think, just looking at the data from this paper, when you also look at it in the context of other studies, it's probably in the five to 7% range. And so our clinic right now, we've tested about 160 of these long haulers and we're treating them with the same kinds of things we would treat post-viral anosmia with, you know, olfactory retraining, budesonide rinses. Uh, We're starting to look at platelet-rich plasma as a possibility. A lot of that's going to turn into other areas of research investigation to try to figure out who these long haulers are and what makes them different. What, if anything, is more likely to be associated with recovery? Other avenues that we've gone down, there's a group in Singapore who contacted us for our raw data because they were doing a meta-analysis of ours with, with 17 other studies. There was almost 3,700 patients in their final data set. In their analysis, it showed the pooled analysis that, that an estimated 5.6% didn't recover. And in that study, which is hopefully to be published soon, at higher initial severity and female gender correlated with prolonged disease duration. So that concept of initial severity correlating with duration of disease was exactly what we found. To your prior point, they did a really sophisticated sensitivity analysis showing that smell and taste dysfunction might be underestimated. So that that just brings back something that you brought up earlier regarding recall bias. Collaborating with that group is one of the joys of being in tertiary care medicine because colleagues on the other side of the world take notice of what you're doing and they want to collaborate. And the fun of dealing with folks who are seeing the problem from a perspective in a different geography and with uh, different patients and, and seeing how our observations correlate, also how we can work together to consolidate these patients and, and reach larger, broader, more meaningful conclusions. And so that's been one of the inspiring aspects of investigating in this area. And I'll say that the work you're doing is so important because as the general otolaryngologists that are there on the, on the front line seeing these patients, and especially the huge surge of patients that we saw at the beginning of this year who were coming into our offices asking us for advice and what they can do and what their prognosis is. I, I think that, that, that the work that groups like you at Vanderbilt are doing is critical because the clinician that's out there on the front lines, you know, seeing all these patients wants to have some data to be able to sort of guide their patients. And that kind of brings me up to my last question, which is what do you want for the general otolaryngologists that are listening to this podcast that want to be able to give their patients meaningful advice, prognosis? What do you tell your patients? What do you counsel your patients? 
Well, it depends on the stage of the disease where you encounter patients with this problem. Early in the course, I, I think what we found, and I think what the rest of the literature also jives with, this information about recovery duration of disease is, is critically important because it's a, it's a basis for counseling patients. And you can take these statistics and, and invert them and say, all right, well, somebody presents to you with a new diagnosis of COVID and has complete subjective anosmia. If you tested them, you probably would find the same. And they're very anxious, telling them that, okay, 93, 94% of these patients recover is a source of optimism for a lot of them. Also, the idea that it can take three weeks. You know how human beings are. We, we're not very patient, but at the same time that when our expectations are, are guided, we tend to handle things better. Just like when you're waiting for your flight, the clock is ticking and you're just seeing hours go by with no updates. It feels worse than when every 20 minutes the, the gate agent is telling you what's going on. So the knowledge that it can take three weeks to recover also helps to take the patient's anxiety down a notch. Also, the idea that someone compassionately is invested in their condition and gives them things to do, which can, for all practical purposes, only help and not hurt, such as olfactory retraining and high-dose intranasal corticosteroids. We also try to talk to them about foods that they enjoy for color and texture and how to try to derive pleasure from, from eating using these other senses. And you can always track that too, knowing that the patients, their, their overall quality of life, a lot of times comes down, not just specifically to the sense of smell in a pure sense, but how much that they actually enjoy eating. So if you can give them other ways to do that, then they tend to have better overall life quality. No, that's great advice, Rick. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Rick. And again, congratulations to you and your collaborators on a great paper. This has been, a, I think, a great discussion on an important clinical topic that we will likely need to continue to address in our practices. Hopefully this will improve over time, but none of us have a crystal ball. Again, we really appreciate your time. Well, on behalf of my group, we are very honored, grateful for your interest in us and our work. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Rick. And thanks to our Scope It Out listeners. This is Doug Ray for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, signing off for now. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors. 